Welcome back to the Magic Story Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie. And I'm your other host, Hardless. The Magic Story Podcast recaps the fiction story behind the card game Magic the Gathering with their own bits of flavor text added in along the way. We are currently in Season 6, which follows the story of the Lost Caverns of Ixalan. All of the fiction stories for the Lost Caverns of Ixalan are out right now on mtgstory.com if you want to go ahead and read them for yourself. Today's episode on the podcast is recapping episode four of the main story of the Lost Caverns of Ixalan, and it's written by Valerie Valdez. Join us as we head into the multiverse. So for a quick recap of what happened last episode in episode three, there are three stories going along and kind of on the same time. One of these stories follows the Sun Empire. And last time we had watched Quint and Waita fight off a mycoid titan. And then they are rescued by River Heralds, which are the merfolk. And they have a giant city deep underground of, of Ixalan. And it is the largest collection of merfolk we find out on Ixalan. And while this is all happening, we have another story that's following our siren friend Malcolm and his goblin companion Breaches. And they last episode had to watch their comrades be turned by the fungus in the caves. And this fungus turned to be sentient and is writing to them. And at the very end of last episode, they had actually said safe and the word down. So it is speaking to them in their language. And we think that might be a trap, but they decide to go with it. And meanwhile, while these other two stories are happening, we are following the Dusk Legion vampires and Amalia, who is a young cartographer, and our old friend Kellen, and the other vampires with them are captured by the Melamet, who are the jaguar folk. And their leader, Sovereign Okanek Ahau, sentences them to the sand and they end up going through this quicksand, but they wind up in a freshwater river and they were surrounded by the River Heralds at the end of last episode. Well, this episode opens with Quint, who, along with the rest of his expedition, is waiting for Shaper Pasona in a great room inside a pyramid. Quint is ruminating on what Waita said, and I'll read the next part from the story. Quint examined the poncho that held Abuelo's spirit as he contemplated what he and Waita had discussed earlier. He'd never worked at an archaeological site so far outside his own experience, and he felt underprepared despite his training. How many history tests at Strixhaven were written by members of the culture they described? Hadn't he himself been annoyed at some Loxodon descriptions? When he'd found the lost city of Xantafar, a few archaeologists argued he shouldn't be permitted to work at the site because he wasn't sufficiently neutral. Thankfully, they'd been overruled, but it was a tense time. Now, faced with one astonishing discovery after another, he wondered if Waita was right. None of this was his story to tell. Though perhaps if he found more evidence of the coin empire. Finally, the group is led outside and up a seemingly endless flight of stairs. And at the top is the huge golden door they had seen when they first entered the city. But while Quint is paying attention to the door, the others notice something they're not expecting. It's the vampires of the Dusk Legion. Before the two groups can interact, though, Shaper Pashona enters the room and greets Watley. 
Shaper Pashona questions the group and asks them what their intentions are. She singles out Quint specifically, asking him what he's going to do with the knowledge he finds here before turning back to Watley to ask her intentions. And Watley is honest with Shaper Pashona, but careful not to reveal too much in front of the Legion of Dusk. Shaper Pashona then directs a question to the vampires. Who leads you? And Vito responds, Our business is none of your concern. You will release us at once. That's so Vito. Of course that's, he does. That's such a yeah. Vito response. <laughs> he does not know how to play nice at all. And upon hearing this, Inti stands up straighter and says that these invaders should be imprisoned. Or killed, Kaparokti adds. And Watley even nods in agreement. There is clearly no love lost between the Sun Empire and the Legion of Dusk. But Shaper Pashona reminds them that here, they're all invaders. And this is when Shaper Pashona tells them, We helped you so that we could learn your purpose, but we can throw you back into the sea and let the spirits decide your fates. You cannot stop our holy mission, the vampire leader insisted. If you kill us, Inti said, you declare war on the entire Sun Empire. Another vampire stepped forward, elegantly dressed, with the whip hanging from his belt. Torazan as well. Queen Meralda will be most displeased. Nikansil's fins rippled. You assume your people would ever find us. Hands reached for weapons, and the sharp scent of magic filled the air. Quint fixed the image of a defensive sigil in his mind. Enough, Watley exclaimed. Shaper, your people and mine seek to open this door. I propose we work together. And Watley explains that they can translate the glyphs on the door, but before they can begin the translations, they all start bickering again. The River Heralds exclaim that the Sun Empire first took the Golden City, which was a betrayal. And then the River Heralds kind of rebuttal that and claimed the Immortal Sun, which was another betrayal. But Watley reminds the group that everyone makes mistakes. They can choose to fight now over those mistakes, or they could work together to build a more lasting peace between them. And this is so warrior poet. It was a beautiful demonstration of Watley's skills as a leader. It was just, it. Watley shines right here. Yeah, agreed. And Bartolome also speaks up and says that Queen Meralda may be open to negotiations dependent upon what they find here, but Vito tells him to shut his mouth. Vito is clearly very, very mad at this point, and Shaper Pashona quiets them all by telling Watley to proceed. And together, Watley and Quint examine the glyphs on the door. Now, unfortunately, the dialect on this door doesn't match that of the other door. But then Quint has an idea. He summons Abuelo once more. Abuelo immediately exclaims, oh, you made it to Matalantli, and that they should get inside and warn the Oltec about the Mycotyrant. Quint asks Abuelo how they can get into the door, and Abuelo tells him it's quite simple, but that he can't remember. So Watley gestures to a box next to the door and asks Abuelo if it might help open the door, and Abuelo tells them it absolutely does. But once again, he doesn't remember quite how. But he tells them there's a key, but he always forgets. And then he says, Abuela always kept it on her kipu, and I always stayed with her. So if you remember... When Quint found the poncho, he also found a string of beads. And Quint holds them up and asks, is this the kipu? And Abuelo tells Quint that, yes, it is the kipu and takes it from Quint. Now he shifts through the strings of it until he finds what he's looking for and then says, here, the golden door. So Abuelo examines the knots and beads and tells the group what they need to do to open the door. 
Inside the drawer next to the door, they find a set of gemstones, and Abuelo tells them how to place the beads based on the design of the kipu. I'll read this passage from the story. Where do they go? Watley asked, cupping them in her hand. Green in the upper right and lower left corners, Abuelo replied. Yellow in the other corners, and also the three spaces above or below, and over one. Watley did as she was ordered, Abuelo nodding and smiling. Last, the cosmium, he said. The pink ones, Quint asked. Yes, Abuelo flickered like a candle's smoke, then moved away. Pardon me, sometimes cosmium can affect echoes like me in strange ways. So cosmium, that's what all the pink and purple glowing substance is. And here it's being used as in its like original form, I think, which is the gemstones to be put into the door. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. And that's pretty cool. Anyway, so remember how Abuelo just said that the cosmium can affect echoes like him in strange ways? Well, before they complete the pattern, Abuelo flickers again, and though his mouth moves, he appears to be unable to make a sound. But luckily at this point, Watley recognizes the pattern. It's a key, she says, and places the rest of the cosmium gemstones in the center boxes to form a shape like a stylized serpent. And as soon as the last bead is put into the box, it glows faintly and a pink gleam spreads to the door and the glyphs. Light burst through a crack at the seam of the now unsealed portal, which swung open with a rush of surprisingly cold, fresh air. Quint shows some restraint here and lets Watley lead the way. And the group enter a broad tunnel that is wide enough to fit a dozen people. And as Quint walks, he has the dizzying sense that everything around him is shifting almost like how it shifts when he planeswalks. But down and down they go until finally they reach a wide circle of stones like a well, which has a diameter as big as the tunnel. Watley walks to the well and gasps. She says, this is impossible. And everyone gathers around the well saying things like incredible and unbelievable. And this is from the story. They stood before a circle of sky dotted with clouds. Did the door lead back up to the surface? But no, they were deep under the earth, and the tunnel sloped downward. Shadows appeared at the edge of the opening. People, craning their necks over the lip of the well, looking down at Watley and the others. Find a Nimpakal, one of them said, their tone more concerned than shocked. Someone has opened the seal. And so from here, which I am so intrigued, I am so fascinated by this, but we switch to Malcolm and Breaches. Yeah, so, okay, before we move on, they look down into a well that they went underground to see and see the sky on the other side of that well and essentially upside down people looking at them through this well. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That's insane. Like, it's very cool, but insane. Anyway, continue, please. Yes, I I am. Like I said, I am very intrigued. I I have so many questions. So anyway, (laughs) but we need to transition over to Malcolm and Breaches to kind of get caught up with them. So we're back and Malcolm and Breaches are heading down, which if you remember from last episode, is what the black fungal goo told them to. Like, yes, you heard that. The the black fungal goo (laughs) told them to go down. Because they promise safety. Uh, I I don't think it's going to be safe, but that's just me. So they had to cut the elevator cables to escape the pirates that had come with them, who had all been infected with spores, remember, and turned on one another. So going down this giant elevator shaft is not an easy trek. Malcolm is alternately climbing and flying, 
and he's nice enough to carry breeches when he's flying so he doesn't have to climb the entire way there. They're still wearing bandanas over their mouths and noses because, well, they're worried about ingesting the spores and for good reason. And at one point, they find the elevator that they had to cut the cables on, and it's resting on this shelf of mushrooms. But the end of the shaft, like below them, is still nowhere in sight. So I can't imagine what that must be like, where there's this open pit that you can't see the bottom of. And they're just kind of trusting that they're going to reach the bottom eventually. And they're just kind of going down into this darkness. And Malcolm, as they're as they're kind of flying slash climbing down this, they act, he actually loses track of time uh, trying to find the bottom. And he suspects that the sun has set and risen since they've des- been descending into the mine. Like that. So a whole day has passed of them going down into this place. But finally, finally, they reach the end. They're still not at their destination, though. And I'll read this from the story. A tunnel to the left lit up while the glow around them faded as if they were being guided or herded. Breaches grumbled. Bad shrooms. You said it, mate. Malcolm agreed. <laughs> Breaches. He's not wrong. He's not the, wrong. Delivery. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and just as a reminder, like Breaches text is literally all two words, all caps. All caps. It's, <laughs> it's all amazing. caps, always. <laughs> and it's two words. It's just I and so I am just reading it quite literally off of the page, y'all. Like it is You're doing a great job. It is, it is all capital <laughs> letters. <laughs> so Malcolm and Breaches follow that glow through tunnels, and Malcolm starts to wonder how on earth they would escape if this is in fact a trap. And he laments that the sky was so far above them, the sea so far away. So eventually they come upon a cavern that is large enough to contain an entire town. And this is from the story. A fungal forest spread out before them, hauntingly beautiful, littered with crumbling ruins. Bioluminescent spores floated like tiny fireflies between mushrooms as tall as trees, their caps and stems every shade of green, from the palest sea foam to nearly black. Gills fluttered as Malcolm and Breaches passed, as if they were being sniffed. Yeah, okay, that Which- verb... That's so weird. As if they were being (laughs) sniffed. Like, I I don't want to imagine a giant mushroom sniffing at me. Okay. I already exclaimed in previous episodes that I do not like mushrooms. Uh, (laughs) Well, I actually, it's funny because while you're like sitting there like, okay, get away from me, you weird sniffy mushroom. I'm sitting here thinking, wow, this place sounds beautiful. Right? Like, it's bioluminescent. It's underground. It's all mushrooms. Mushrooms as tall as trees. It's described as being hauntingly beautiful. And it's a whole forest made out of fungus. And I I just think that looks so cool. I don't know. As as of the recording of this, I don't think a card I don't think a card has been revealed that shows this. Um, but I can't wait for us to see this art because oh my goodness. That just seems so cool. I, I really just I'm ready to see what it looks like. They hear noises and start to think that they're not alone down here, which That's what's creepy for me. And Malcolm is growing more and more anxious and becoming more and more filled with dread the further they go until they reach a clearing. And the ground is covered in connected concentric circles. And Malcolm stops before stepping on the lines. He remarks that these lines resemble a spider's web and that he has no desire to be caught like a fly. And then a motley collection of people emerges from the forest. At first, he doesn't recognize them because they're covered in fungus, just like the very corpse that had begun this investigation. Link, I think his name was. Yeah. 
One of the humans stepped forward, his movements stilted, eyes replaced by glowing button mushrooms. Xavier Saul, the mayor of downtown. Malcolm's hope of finding survivors vanished as soon as the man opened his mouth. So his whole quest to find survivors has just now come to an end. There are no survivors. That's so sad. It is. It like, is. He had hope this whole time that he would find someone. He would find some group of survivors. But the horrible truth that he is seeing now is that all the people of downtown have been infected. Yeah. And the infected mayor begins to speak. He says, we welcome you to this place. Who is we? Malcolm asks. And the mayor responds, we are the mycotyrant. And gestures behind him as a giant figure is illuminated by that glowing green fungus. The mycotyrant hung in a circular web of root-like strands stretching from floor to the ceiling. Its toad-like body was broad and green with purplish spots, gills like a collar around its neck. Large mushrooms sprouted from its back, smaller ones from its head. And while it had no legs, two thick arms ended in vicious claws. Above a lipless, gaping maw filled with thorn-like teeth, beady eyes glowed green, staring down at Malcolm and Breaches with malevolent interest. The mycotyrant, speaking through the mayor, Xavier, says, You are known to us, Malcolm Lee, and tells Malcolm that his quest is also known thanks to his former companions. Malcolm asks if his former companions are here, and the mayor-slash-mycotyrant responds with, Yes, but then reveals that they have been incorporated into the colony, just like the residents of downtown. Malcolm asks for clarification on what incorporated means, and all the humans who walked out of the forest in unison say, we are one. And, uh, <laughs> and I just have to say, this is creepily reminiscent of what we just went through with a bunch of unified Phyrexians and we yeah. know how devastating and creepy that can be. So this just had uncanny valley vibes of yikes that alarm bells were screaming at me over this, like the, the unified voice of the micro tyrant. That's terrifying. Yeah, it's definitely it's so creepy too. like all these people just like puppets saying we we are one like Ooh. but it's about to get a little bit worse and i'll read this next passage directly from the story malcolm had seen trees felled by fungus trunks rotted from the inside given what had happened to his people the dinosaurs they had fought and what he faced now he could only assume they were suffering a similar fate he looked past xavier at the micro tyrant wreathed in a fungal light what is it you want malcolm asked Gems? Money? Food? The mycotyrant emitted a cloud of spores like a silent laugh. Xavier's mouth stretched in a rictus that mirrored his puppet master's motion. Everything. And then we switched to Amalia and the Dusk Legion. <laughs> so oh, man. Things are just getting worse and worse and worse here. Uh, Everything? What does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> what does it mean? Oh, my gosh. Okay. So Amalia is standing in front of the now open golden door, and it is revealed to us that this is the same door from her visions, which means Ooh. she's closer than ever to Aklazad's. I also do not like that. But she and Kellen and the others all enter the door and walk through a tunnel before emerging into 
the astounding place she had also seen in her visions. I feel like all of this is coming to a head. Anyway, I'll read to you what the group (laughs) sees. A sprawling panorama spread before, above, and around her as she stepped through the portal. Vibrant grasslands stretched into the distance. Strange, long-necked furry creatures roamed, and birds soared through the air, alone or in flocks. Let's let's also remember, I, I, I'm reading this aloud, and I'm sorry, I'm trying to wrap my brain. They're underground. This, this place that I'm describing, this great prairie with birds, you know, uh, like flapping into the air they are deep underground like <laughs> this is this is blowing yeah, my mind wild. right now but instead of the land disappearing at the horizon it curved upward amalia had the disconcerting sensation of being inside an enormous inverse globe at the center of it all a strange sun hovered so close amalia imagined she could reach it if she possessed the power of flight it illuminated half the land while other parts fell into shadow caused by the metal pieces rotating around it. A tail of more metal shards extended away from it, glittering a faint pink. This, too, she had foreseen, and she shivered at the thought of what future places she might be shown next. So, Kellen, next to her, exclaims that this is truly incredible, and asks if this is what Amalia was trying to find. She tells him she doesn't know, that she's never been here before. As they walk, there is a pyramid to their left, which rises several stories and has a large spiked disc at the top, similar to the ones in the Sun Empire. There are shorter buildings all around them, and people begin to emerge from these buildings. They are dressed in ponchos and kipu like Abuelo, and they have these pink-bladed weapons and staves with magic that, quote, sent rippling pulses through the air. And this is from the story. Among their number, smaller creatures waddled about, their jointed bodies formed from various kinds of metal. Each had a single glowing eye in colors ranging from red to green to purple and beyond. Floating spirits joined them, some humanoid with recognizable features, others more like animals or half-formed wisps of teal fog. Amalia squinted at the strange sun, black dots floating around it like birds. Some of these shifted into an arrow-shaped formation and approached. More warriors, riding on the backs of great bats that also wore armor like the Sun Empire's flying dinosaurs. Something about the bats made her shudder, as if in response, the voice from her visions returned. Come to me. The voice seems louder now, almost stronger. And as Amalia glances at Vito, she notices that he is smiling fanatically with his gaze turned to the sky. So maybe he's hearing the same voice? I'm not sure. It seems like it. Now, Bartolome touches Amalia's arm and asks her if she's well, but she doesn't confide in him here. Instead, she just tells him she's overwhelmed. At this point, the group of people riding giant armored bats fly toward the group, and Kellen asks if Amalia knows what is happening. She tells him no, but she hopes they find out soon, and Kellen says that as long as they're not flung into quicksand again, this is an improvement. The riders land, and a woman with dark hair held in place by a crown-like band who was adorned in cosmium, like she has cosmium gemstones all over her, lands and begins speaking. She tells them that she is Anim Pakal, and that she commands the Thousand Moons. She immediately follows with, who are you all, and how have you opened the seal at Matsalantli? Abuelo drifts forward and tells Anim that he helped them and that he was granted the key to entry when the door was sealed in the hopes that they could return when the Maiko Tyrant was defeated. And this is from the story. Anim inclined her head to him. Honored Echo, we welcome you. 
Does this mean Tupizielio is safe now? Abuelo shook his head. It is not, but neither is Otaklan and the rest of the Corps. The mycotyrant has grown in power rather than fading. The plan to isolate and defeat it has failed. Then why did you open the door? Anim asked. You have brought ruin to us. Ruin would have found you asleep in your beds, Abuelo replied with a curt gesture. Now you can prepare yourselves. The thousand moons do not sleep, Anim said. This garrison has guarded the door at Matsalantli since it was closed in the time of my ancestors. It would have remained closed, and we would have been safe if you had not opened it. Watley steps forward here and bows in respect before she says that they would have found a way in eventually since her people and many others have been digging deeper than ever into Ixalan, which we know is true because look how deep downtown is. Bartolome speaks up and supports her on this and says as such. Shaper Pashona adds, We believed we would find the source behind the door. We too would have done all in our power to unseal it. Ignorance can provide a measure of safety, but it can also make for poor choices. And Amalia thinks to herself that she knows that sentiment well. If she had realized what this journey would mean for her, she might have stayed at home. But no, that was an unworthy thought. She had learned so much, and her maps would be of great value to her people, if she ever managed to return to Torazon. Finally, Anim replies. She asks Watley if she is of the Kamon, and Watley tells her she is of the Sun Empire, but hasn't heard of the Kamon. And Anim tells her that's what their ancestors who left the core to explore were called, and that they used to trade regularly until the door was sealed, and since then, they haven't seen them, obviously. Quint remarks that it seems likely the Komon made it to the surface because of the similarity in glyphs used by the Sun Empire and the people of the core if the Komon are the ones who made that door, right? So, like, the doors are, like, all the way to the golden door that opened Mm -hmm. into the core from the door that they entered to just get into the caverns. If they have similar glyphs, then it's very likely that the similarities are too close. Like, like, they look very similar. Um, Exactly. And with this knowledge, Inti offers the strength of the Sun Empire in exchange for their hospitality and tells them that they're eager to trade and improve bonds between the Sun Empire and their, quote, long-departed cousins. But then Anim approaches Vito, who just inclines his head and says nothing, like he literally just ignores her, like, what a butt. <laughs> so Bartolome speaks up and tells her they are humble explorers from the Queen's Bay Company, but a Sun Empire soldier just shouts out, they're vampires. And Anim changes immediately. This is from the story. Magic arced between her fingers and danced up her arms as she formed a glowing shield between her and Vito. The Oltec surrounded the Legion members, weapons drawn and more magic rippling in the air. Worshippers of the Great Betrayer are not welcome here, Anim said coldly. Imprison them. Again, Kellen groaned. Amalia echoed the sentiment, but if fighting the Malamet had been foolhardy, attacking the Oltec would be suicidal. Vito seemed about to protest, then his eyes glazed over and he grabbed Clavileño's arm. All proceeds according to his will, he said. Amalia flinched, expecting the harsh whispers of Aklazots to echo in her mind once again, but she heard nothing. Perhaps that was a blessing. The shadows of the Batriders fell on the vampires as they were led away into the depths of the garrison, away from the light of the strange, shell-covered sun. So we switch from here to Waita's perspective. 
The Sun Empire is in a dining hall partaking of the local food. One of the Oltec approaches Watley and guides her to the steward who has arrived. Watley tosses the rest of her meal to her dinosaur, Pentlaza, and follows her Oltec guide. Inti and Kaparakti flank Watley and the other warriors follow. A call, the Oltec steward, welcomes them upon their arrival. Before they talk, the steward wants to know more about the blood drinkers who are in the core. Watley tells a call that the vampires are not allies of the Sun Empire and that they have warred with the vampires in the past. She goes on to tell her that despite this, they all fought together against the Phyrexians and that she is hopeful for a future of peace among the Sun Empire and the Dusk Legion. But Inti interjects and says, or you could help us get rid of the vampires now. Watley, Inti, and Kabarakti argue. Apparently, the Emperor thinks now is the perfect time to strike against the vampires because Torazan has been weakened by the invasion and fight infighting, among other things. But Watley holds fast to her beliefs that peace is possible. Again, the warrior poet, right? It's just, it, she, is, she is demonstrating true leadership. She can see beyond, like, the mistakes, as she called them earlier, that they've made in the past. And it seems like some of the others are too angry to be able to see past their own anger and their own emotions. So Waita is listening to this fighting and muses about why she joined the Brazen Coalition. And this is directly from the story. Waita had heard enough of the same talk when she fought in Tokatli during the war. Stay in one place and set up blockades or stay mobile and be harder to target. Retreat and retrench or push ahead and drive the enemy out. Keep supply lines open and risk quick death, or let them collapse and risk starvation. Some commanders were more careful than others, some more thirsty for glory and power. The latter, she had found, were eager to spend the coin of other warriors' lives from the safety of their well-stocked bunkers. Common soldiers suffered in the aftermath of the war, too, despite their sacrifices. Those who gained power through violence didn't give it up easily, using it to exploit the powerless and increase their own influence. Her frustration had led her to the Brazen Coalition and now back to the Sun Empire, but she wondered whether there was anywhere in all of Ixalan where the same problems wouldn't find her. Waita wanders over to Quint, who's talking to Abuelo, and they're actually talking about how Abuelo must be bound to the poncho because that's how Quint summoned him. And Quint asks if an echo is bound to the Kipu. And Abuelo tells Quint that he hopes so since the Kipu belonged to Abuela, his wife. And Quint lays out the kipu and says that perhaps he can bring her back, as long as she's an echo and didn't simply pass on. And once more, we're back with Malcolm and Breaches, who are surrounded by the, quote, fungus-infested residents of downtown. All of them dead. Malcolm is not happy. He asks, you did this to our people? And the mayor slash mycotyrant says that they wanted to know more of the people who dug and dug until they found one of the mycoids. And you couldn't simply ask, Malcolm accuses. The mycotyrant replies, to join is to ask and to know. To kill, you mean, Malcolm replies. The mycotyrant explains that they do not kill. They just change and spread. He says that where there is one of us, there are all of us. And that's strangely reminiscent too. We've heard that before. Mm-hmm if the mycotyrant understands that it's killing people to, quote, join them. He asks the mycotyrant where he came from, to which the mycotyrant, through the mayor's mouth still, says, We have always been. We have watched and grown. 
We have seen the Oltec and their gods walk the core before it was denied to us. We were here when the Komon Wenak built cities and when their bones enriched the soil. We have traded with the Malamet and the deep goblins and gathered lore from all the flesh that finds us. Malcolm doesn't understand a lot of what is being said, but he does understand trade. He tells the Mycotyrant that maybe they can strike a deal and asks what his people might be able to offer the Mycotyrant. Gold? Breaches asks. Gems? The Mycotyrant's eyes brighten as the mayor says, We want the sun. And this is from the story. You can't just have a son, Malcolm thought, but he kept that to himself as the full potential of what the Mycotyrant said dawned on him. If this creature made it to the surface, depending on how fast it spread, it could soon consume all of Sunray Bay, maybe even all of Ixalan. Lost gold and gems, as breaches kept lamenting, were the absolute least of their worries. Malcolm peered around him at the fungal forest, the high ceiling of the cavern, and the stalagmites and stalactites with their luminescent mold. He thought back to the tunnels through which he and Breaches had passed to get here, the distance from the bottom of downtown Cenote Mine up to the surface. How could he and Breaches possibly escape this place alive? And then we switch one final time to Amalia, who, among the other vampires, is in a temporary detention room. Apparently there are no prisons here because people are not jailed as punishment, but Bartolome, Amalia, and Kellen are at least all together in their room that they're being detained in. And Amalia's map hadn't been confiscated like their weapons had been, so she's actually able to get a sense of the area around her using her cartography skills while they're stuck in here. And Vito is in another room, but the group hear him call out, The time of our salvation is at hand. The words of Venerable Tarion have guided me to this, our destination, and soon we will be redeemed. Sounds very Vito. <laughs> It's very Vito, just so dramatic, but so dramatic. And Kellen breaks the tension by asking, so you're vampires. And Bartolome asks what Kellen knows of vampires. And Kellen tells him that he knows that they murder innocent people and drink their blood, not necessarily in that order, which hurtful stereotypes there, Kellen. Kidding. Uh, Not all vampires, you know? Right? Hashtag not all vampires. (laughs) (laughs) And Amalia corrects him. She tells him her church preaches differently, that they only feed on criminals and evil people and that they use the power of blood to help others. And Kellen asks, who decides who's a criminal? And follows that up with, right now, we're criminals. Amalia just replies, justice will be served. But her conviction wavers. She's never really considered that the people in prison in Torazon might be innocent, but she's kind of starting to question the church here. Vito roars out, Ours is the promise of eternity, baptized in blood and sanctified by Aklazots, who waits for us here beyond these doors. And Bartolome sighs and says, Some of us are not entirely committed to the morals espoused by the church. And here Amalia changes the subject and asks Kellen about the, quote, magical doorway he had come here through. Kellen tells Amalia that he's searching for his father. She asks what he'll do when he finds his father, but Kellen admits that it depends because he's never met him before. Bartolome asks why he wants to find him if he doesn't know him. A golden spark flashed in Kellen's brown eyes. I need to know more about myself, who I am. Amalia understood that sentiment all too well. I suspect, Bartolome said, laying a hand on Kellen's shoulder, that whether you find your father or not, 
you'll know yourself quite well by the end of your quest. You may be right, Kellen chuckled. I already know I'm tired of being rescued and imprisoned. <laughs> Cute. So Bartolome says that Amalia's magic could get them out of here, but he just doesn't know where they'd go. And once again, Vito starts hollering from the other room. This time he yells, Behold, the power of Aklazots. And the light outside begins to dim and fade. A magical fog covers the building. And Amalia knows that her people can do this, but she doesn't understand why Vito is doing it now. And then she hears a scream followed by a gurgle and smells blood. And she thinks the usual rules and traditions might not bind those who were already prepared to commit atrocities in the name of God. Now Vito's voice fills the silence again as he says, follow me, children of shadow. Now we reclaim our power. And Bartolome tells Amalia that if something happens to him, she must return to Queen Miralda and tell her everything. And he makes her promise that she'll do this. And then the door is torn from its hinges and thrown aside. And Clavileño steps in, followed by none other than Vito, who says that Aklazot's demands a sacrifice. Now, Bartolome tells Vito he has had enough sacrifices, but Vito says that the blood of the outsider will suffice, meaning Kellen. So Bartolome mouths escape to Amalia. She hovers her quill over the map as Bartolome leaps at Vito. They grapple and block the doorway so no one can intervene. And Kellen pulls out his wooden hilts and magics them into swords, but Vito snaps Bartolome's neck, killing him. No! Bartolome! I mean, I, know. Uh, I mean, if any one of the vampires was going to be able to stop Vito, I thought it was going to be Bartolome. Like, I knew that Me they too. were going to fight and, mm-hmm. and I knew that this was going to come to a head. I knew it was it was inevitable that it had been leading up to this moment. But I thought Bartolome was going to be the one to end Vito. No, no, I know. no, no, no. It's brutal. Uh, so. From here, uh, I'm, I'm with Amalia here. Amalia has to stifle back a sob when she sees this happen to Bartolome. Um, but she uses her powers to erase the wall behind her. And from here, she and Kellen just run, escape into the into the darkness. And that's how the episode ends. Oh, my gosh. We keep saying it. This is such a cliffhanger. This is such a cliffhanger. But these episodes are just building and building and getting more and more troublesome yeah. in terms of the cliffhangers. Yeah. Like, like we, we lost a character this episode. Every time. We just lost a pretty significant character this episode in Bartolome. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And they they discovered the core. Oh, my gosh. How cool. Like, how cool is this? Is the Ultec and the core? Like, it, it's just this glorious, beautiful place that has existed in the in the inside, deep underground of Ixalan this whole time. Um, and the fact that their legends are connected, like the it is all part of a, a similar ancestor is 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 a yeah, really cool is a really cool uh, concept. And um, I just I'm like, also can't get the Myco tyrant out of my head. Um, oh my gosh, what a monster. Are you yeah. going to have some mushroom I am, steaks I think for I'm dinner? Go- I, <laughs> I think I'm going to stay even farther away from mushrooms. And that is saying something because I already give them a very, a, a very uh, large distance in, in my life. But I think even more so now. Also, sniffing mushrooms, I will never be able to get out of okay, my head. That's weird. That's weird. <laughs> Goose spitting, sniffing mushrooms. Yeah. I don't want them anywhere near my pizza. Yeah. No, no thank, thank you. you. 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, as always, you can find this story and the rest of the story of the Lost Caverns of Ixalan at mtgstory.com right now. You can also check out the audiobooks for each of these episodes read to you by wizards themselves. Uh, These are available right at the top of the episode of each story. We'll see you next week, but until then, have have a magical magical day. day.